1: hi and welcome to the state of cannabis news hour where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts opinions and a pinch of humor it's tuesday january eleventh, 2022 this is episode number 191 I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book "What's Growing in Grandma's Garden" and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 22,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today we're talking about why to keep your toke off the slopes, the GOP and social equity, a toddler accidentally given a hundred milligram cake pop, an anti-drug GOP senator helping the psychedelic church. Speaking of psychedelics, shroom companies are on the NASDAQ now. Oakland Cannabis Car Caravan burglaries continue, and many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it it brief and relevant, or you may get the gong. Kicking off the show today is our very own Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, my headline today is a bit of a bummer for those trying to hit the slopes this
2: winter, and it's about why you can't toke on the slopes. The headline reads, can you you use cannabis at a ski resort? Why you need to keep your toke off the slopes. Just because you're skiing in a state where cannabis is legal doesn't mean it's a good idea to light up at the resort. While it may seem like there could be nothing better to do after a long day of hitting the slopes, ski resorts around the country are cracking down on visitors using cannabis on their grounds. And I can't, Say, I told you so, enough on this one. But why aren't ski resorts embracing the perks of legalization? Well, we've broken down the why behind the strict cannabis policy resorts and what cannabis products you can and can't bring with you on your next ski trip. Well, in 2021, we saw a rash of states opening up legalization of cannabis for adult use. As it stands today, many of the states where marijuana is legal for either medicinal or adult use purposes are home to some of the best ski resorts in the nation. The states like California, Colorado, Vermont, and Utah all have superb skiing. Well, why is it still illegal to smoke cannabis at a ski resort in states that have legalized the use? Well, it all comes down to deschedule or bust, because it's all a matter of state versus federal law. Many ski resorts are actually on federal land. Anything you do while on federal land is subject to federal law, which means smoking on the on the slopes is absolutely illegal. Federal law, which supersedes state law, states that cannabis is still a class one federal drug. Unfortunately, the federal law has not been amended to support the use of cannabis for either medicinal or adult use. And at the moment, cannabis remains a prohibited substance under the Federal Law Controlled Substances Act of 1970. This makes the use of cannabis on most ski resorts across the U.S. an illegal act and something you can actually get in a decent amount of trouble for, ladies and gentlemen. Well, what does it mean for you on your packing list? Well, you shouldn't bring any cannabis in any form, whether it be edibles, tinctures, or dry flour, because technically... It's all illegal. What you can bring is CBD. CBD and any hemp products containing less than 0.3% THC under legal federal law, even though that's pretty fucking gray, and I don't know that I agree with that, uh, thanks to the 2018 Farm Bill. So, when it's time to go hit the slopes, just know you can't toke up. And I'm Nicole West, reporting for the State of Cannabis News.
1: It reminds me of this scene in uh, Basic Instinct.
3: There's uh, no smoking in this building, Ms. Tremel.
1: What are you going to do? charge me
3: with smoking
4: <laughs> <laughs> like this is not i mean you know uh, <laughs> all of these ski resorts located on federal lands and in you know um international parks or whatever or forest service land you know it's never stopped anyone before who's ever ridden a chair so <laughs> Great. Thanks for the PSA.
1: (laughs) I mean, if you can't be high while you're skiing,
2: what? That's ridiculous. So one of the bigger issues that we're having to have in the conversation, they are going to be starting to crack down pretty heavily until we get a deschedule because the issue that we're having is insurance policies so if they're not managing it, um, the insurance policy of people getting injured on the slopes becomes a huge vi- liability for them. And they will actually be able to, they could void their policies um, if they're not upholding this correctly.
1: That makes a lot of sense. But I mean, are the ski resorts doing well this year or last I mean, year? It seems like tourism is...
2: Skiing is a independent sport. So they it hasn't been affected as much um, as we would think. Um, but it, it definitely still has been affected. But regardless, until we deschedule, this is something that's going to be an issue. And at the end of the day, when we're having the conversation of these companies starting trying to protect their liabilities, um, you know, one thing that I definitely will say is they're going to get aggressive and the parks and recs has the authority to actually arrest you on that just in case anyone was curious.
1: Jesus Lord, Califari is up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in on Nicole's headline?
5: Yeah, I just had a question. Does this mean that all Delta Eight products are legal at ski resorts?
1: Man, Delta Eight is
2: such a uh, yeah. So <laughs> I'd say that's a that was just set up. Thank you, Calipari.
6: It's a win for D8. No, I, I want to uh, comment on real quick. The, so- the first time, <laughs> the first time that I went out to. Uh, the snowboard out in Breckenridge. I thought I was cool. Smoked a joint before I went up there and passed the fuck out because I couldn't deal with the altitude anyway. So oh, yikes. Yeah, the last time <laughs> I got doing. high
7: on the slopes, I totally lost control. my board. I took it off my feet uh, to smoke and the, the board just flew off the side of the mountain. So yeah, I learned my lesson. <laughs> I
8: think that <laughs> I have to say, in college in maine i was a lot better snowboarder using cannabis because it took away some of my anxiety about going into the park and different things but i I, at least on the east coast and vermont and stuff there's such a a marriage of cannabis and skiing or being at the ski resort but nicole is totally right we don't want these places to have to shut because of that so i hope we can move towards deschedule or bust very soon my
2: bigger concern also is altitude and everybody understands how altitude affects your body a little bit differently and when we're having the conversation of can tourism in these beautiful places like breckenridge or vale and you're up at a fucking two miles high and you're smoking the hot, most potent weed you've ever smoked in your fucking life because you're not from there um i think it's a little bit of a, a reality check for some of these people and and if you're not a regular consumer and you're also not a regular altitude liver i think that it's a really big concern for people to be going up there and smoking up right before they fucking get off the lift having no concept of how bad that's going to affect them and and jumping off and being like holy shit i'm right. up here yeah and skiing right.
9: is hard and man hard. And skiing and snowboarding is really really hard and your first time out of the year is like it's exhausting um i'm up in uh, in Truckee, where there's uh, you know a ton of ski resorts and uh my friend i haven't been out yet but my friends are telling me that um there are i wouldn't say they're being enforced but that, that they are letting people know that smoking cannabis is is not welcomed at the ski resort
4: Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's always been part of the culture, but, um, you know, I I can see why they would want to crack down on some levels. But honestly, if you're high and you get into an accident, even if you weren't high at the time, I mean, they're going to use that against you as a way not to pay out, so not to be liable, actually. Um, And, you know, they're going to use it as a defense. You know, they don't need to go after everybody. But you're a lot
2: more likely to if you've got fucking weed in that flew out of your hand when the ski <laughs> come, and they show up and you've got a fucking packet joints spread across the fucking well, ice then they're like okay this person was high take a picture of this we're not paying this insurance claim
4: right exactly they, you know but they let people have three martinis and head out the chair totally,
9: no problem totally Ridiculous. no no caps on white right. closet where i've gone uh right
2: it's Want a white opposite. claw for the slopes? Here, let's... Are oh, you want a pocket claw? You need a pocket claw? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Nanogram wants to know what that is. <laughs> a
2: white claw? You don't know what a white claw is? It's... it's
1: I do okay, not. White
2: Claw is like uh, the most basic bitch beverage of twenty nine, twenty, twenty, twenty one. It's the beginning of the seltzer craze. Um, they're the sweetest of the seltzers on the market for the most part. Very juicy, less seltery, uh, but they are the beginning of the 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 uh, epidemic that is seltzer beers.
6: Fear no law when you're on the claw. R.I.P. Zima.
1: That sounds disgusting. I had no idea that you would be more high in a higher altitude. This is news to me. I knew that about alcohol, but damn, chemo. Hey, what did you want to say?
0: Yeah, snow, uh, smoking weed, and snowboarding go hand in hand. I'm going to continue to hotbox the little gondolas, the uh, four person gondolas at uh, Squaw Valley, where I go all the time. And there's also no laws when you're drinking claws.
9: Chemo, uh-huh. hit me up. Let's 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 do it. Let's do it up there at Squaw
6: Palisades. Yeet. No law on the claw at squaw.
2: I feel like there's still <laughs> some laws when you're on the claw, like a DUI might come into fucking No, It's just the song. It's just the song.
1: It sounds like a hangover to me. I don't want the claw.
2: There's complete hangovers. That's like literally that hangover in a can.
1: Yeah, it's boof alcohol. <laughs> Yay, Malt Jason's is here. Booth.
2: It's boof alcohol. That is so true. White Claw is boof.
1: All right. Well, that was a fun headline. Thank you so much, Nicole. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour even when he gets zero sleep. What you got,
6: Rico? All right. So mine's coming out. Uh, is uh, Republicans are stripping out social equity in cannabis legislation. It's coming out of marijuana moment. All right. So even had a green entrepreneur. Yeah. So elections have consequences. You need evidence. Look no further than my home state of Virginia and their newly elected Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin. The same Glenn Youngkin who said in April that he's never met anybody who habitually used marijuana and was successful. The same Glenn Youngkin in May described legislation as another problem that's going to be dumped at my feet when elected. That one. One of the first things Glenn's team done is to show that he's all in for the cannabis businesses in Virginia and remove the efforts by previous administrations to level the playing field when it comes to helping BIPOC communities participate. Virginia legislation filed... SB 107, January 6, and is scheduled to be offered tomorrow, January 12. Those who've been following the bill may have noticed a couple of changes, one of them being 30% of tax revenue that was originally carved out to go to Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Fund is gone. Sources told Green Market Report that while debating what would be kept and left behind, conservative legislators were calling the program the Give a Felon a License Fund. Well, that money is now being directed towards the, de- the general fund under Virginia's old governor, Ralph Northam. The Cannabis uh, Equity Reinvestment Fund was created in the state treasury to help communities affected by the war on drugs. Furthermore, any leftover money was specifically not to go into the general fund. The initial bill language stated the money was for the purpose of one, supporting persons, families and communities historically and disproportionately targeted and affected by the by drug enforcement. Two, Providing scholarship opportunities and education educational and vocational resources for historically marginalized persons, including persons in foster care who have been adversely impacted by the substance use individually in their families and in communities. Three, awarding grants to support workforce development, <laughs> mentoring programs, job, op- uh, job training and placement services, apprenticeships and re-entry services and, that serve persons and communities historically disproportionately targeted by drug enforcement. Four, contributing to the Virginia in- Indigent Defense Commission established pursuant to 192 one six three. And five, contributing to the Virginia Cannabis Equity Business Loan Fund established as well. Democrats passed the original legislation while Republicans voted overwhelmingly against it, but Youngkin won. Paul McClain of Virginia Minority Cannabis Coalition, one of the most respected new voices within the Virginia uh, cannabis industry, said the SB 107 appears to be the first move in dismantling social equity in Virginia. It is. When it comes to Virginia's fledgling cannabis industry, Youngkin's doing exactly what we knew a Republican in control would do. Remember, Republicans don't give a fuck about your feelings. We all know they don't give a fuck about history, science, or facts when it doesn't benefit their own narratives. It's time we stop pre- uh, pretending like they give a fuck about social equity. They don't. On the State of Cannabis News Hour, we debate shit all the time, and I personally enjoy going back and forth with my fellow correspondents about what's real, what's not, and how most, if not all, politicians are full of shit. But this one literally hits a little too close to home for me. And I don't want y'all to think I am or to look at my cover in this story as defending Democrats either because they're trash, too. And there's plenty of negative consequences tied to having them run shit also. But if social equity, truly treating cannabis as medicine or giving the little people a fighting chance in our march toward legalization, if those things really matter to you, y'all might want to think twice next time when choosing who you vote into office. The time is now. To demand reparations. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest Virginia son, all grown up as the dopest California dad for the state of cannabis news hour. Back to you, Nicole and Susan.
1: Thank you for that, Rico. Uh, give give a felon, give a felon a license fund? Wow. How insulting is that? It's like give your corrupt donor guy a license fund. How about that?
10: Wait, are they talking? But they might be. Are they talking about? I, I'm not sure. Are they talking about felons getting licensing? That's that's okay. No, what no, Sean, they're
1: me? they're calling it that to 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 make it like it. What oh, what are we doing? Yeah, We're giving yeah. all the licenses to felons. Yeah. Well, why yeah. are they felons?
10: Uh, right. Okay, it's just an hear you. insult. You, yeah. No, I it's hear you an on that. That to is insulting. Activity. I mean, honestly, at this stage, I'm not insulted anymore because, look, y'all, you you know I'm from Texas, I'm Mexicana. I'm, t- I'm like a quarter Native American, and they, that's still not rec- recognized. So when it comes to reparations or restorative justice or reconstruction, because that's where we actually still are in this country. We're still in the chapter of reconstruction. I'm not waiting on them. I'm not waiting on the government anymore. This government has never had my people's interest at heart. And so what I care to do is continue to innovate and get this industry where we need to get it, because we can develop our own programs. We can do this. We can be self-funded and we can figure this out. I'm done waiting for them. They were never here to help us anyway.
1: We've got Jeffrey Starup from the audience, aka Dr. Bong. He is a New York City medical cannabis OG, patient physician and media cannabis outreach specialist. Jeffrey, what do you think?
3: Good afternoon everyone. I just this is I was just listening in and I have to say This is one of the reasons why I love you guys show. And this is the reason why I set my alarm to listen to you. Rico, you are the fucking man. You are absolutely right. They don't give a shit about any of us, Democrat, Republican. And it's about time. I felt the passion in your voice. I felt the passion in Sean's voice. So I just wanted to say that we in New York are watching closely what's going on because the fight is here, people. It's not coming. It's not down the road. It's right here, right now, and they've taken so many things away from people. And if you wanna have a conversation, friend me and we could talk about prohibition of alcohol. That was an underground business that brown and black people made money from. The numbers business, the lottery. Again, same thing, and now we've moved to cannabis. Yo, I love this fucking show. I swear to you, I'm at my job listening to you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, everybody who does this show. This is New York City, Bronx. I'm the fuck out, and I'm still pissed. Peace. Love you, brother.
1: I'm Love definitely clipping that. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Well,
2: if nobody has any more comments on Rico's headline, I don't know how you can follow up, Doctor Bong, on that. Um, thank you so much for that headline, Rico, and thank you everybody for your insight and and passion on that. Because yeah, we gotta we gotta keep fucking pushing on this in in the biggest way possible um and up next we have liz rogan liz is the cannabis educator and brand strategist at the healthcare and founder of the cannabis business council of santa barbara county what do you have for us today liz
8: Thanks, Nicole. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My story comes from Marijuana Moment by Kyle Yeager. The headline reads, Top Federal Intelligence Official Loosens Marijuana Regulations for Workers and Addresses Cannabis Stocks. So the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, issued a new memo that says federal employers shouldn't outright reject security clearance applicants over past cannabis use and should also use discretion when it comes to those with cannabis investments in their stock portfolios. So while cannabis is being legalized in states across the country, use by people in positions requiring national security clearance remains an area of concern that needs to be accounted for in the application process to give some additional leeway when it comes to prior cannabis use by applicants and employees. So while federal law on cannabis and a person's past use remains relevant, it is not determinative to decisions on eligibility for eligibility for access to classified information or eligibility to hold a sensitive position. Haynes noted there generally has been a one to two year abstinence requirement for prospective federal employees in uh, security clearance positions, but the policy could be amended in the future if there's a change to federal law concerning cannabis use, and that federal employers should look into other factors outside of past cannabis use alone to see if that specific concern should really determine their employment eligibility, according to their memo. These outside factors could include the frequency of consumption and likelihood that a person would continue to use cannabis. So it seems to be there's a message from the uh, Director of National Intelligence that even recent past cannabis use might be overlooked as long as a person refrains from subsequent consumption after filling out specific national security forms. And the memo does talk also about cannabis-related investments, saying that eligibility for access to classified information or to hold a sensitive position may be impacted negatively should that individual knowingly and directly invest in stocks or business ventures that specifically pertain to cannabis grow. And retailers, while the cultivation and distribution of cannabis remains illegal under federal law, so saying basically people though who didn't knowingly invest in the cannabis space, like maybe giving your money um, in mutual fund or outside advisors put the dollars in the cannabis market, those people shouldn't be automatically penalized by federal agencies. The Department of National Intelligence is providing specific investment-related guidance with respect to the cannabis market, and this is a sign that the industry's continued normalization, even under the umbrella of federal prohibition, is growing. And she says that a decision to invest in an activity, including a cannabis-related business, which the individual knowingly violates federal law, could reflect questionable judgment and unwillingness to comply with laws, rules, and regulations. Unfortunately, CBD also uh, falls under this clearance. So the use of CBD among federal workers um, requiring security clearances banned. And agencies should be aware that the FDA, Federal Drug Administration, does not certify levels of THC and CBD products. So, the percentage of THC can't be guaranteed, posing a potential concern to the use of a CBD product. So, this is generally consistent with policies that have been put into place in several federal agencies since hemp was federally legalized. um, And then some agencies have more strict rules specifically on CBD, like the Department of Defense, the Air Force, and the Navy all say that CBD is off limits. the Biden administration has instituted a policy of granting waivers to certain workers who admit to prior cannabis use, but as we all know, that has come under fire following reports of dozens of staffers being fired or penalized from that. The FBI did update its hiring policies last year to making it that candidates are only automatically disqualified from joining the agency if they have admit to using cannabis within one year of applying. Previously, it was three years. Um, so this is an overall part of an overall push to align state and federal cannabis laws so as to not penalize patients and consumers. And as we all know, this is a very important area to understand further. I'm wondering, is this a sign of cannabis progress nationwide, or is it also the need for workers has helped push this forward? And so basically all current federal employees are banned from using um, any cannabis products. So that seems Completely unfair, seeing that they can use opioid products and other um, restricted substances. So, anyway, this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What does anyone think on this?
10: Sounds like recruitment and retention are down, and <laughs> whenever they flex policies like that, it's because they can't recruit. Free weed to
1: all military personnel
10: and retirees. Just for my personal benefit. And to quote Elliot Lewis, "Weed to the people.
6: Weed for the people." <laughs>
5: We need tax relief if we're given free weed.
1: Amen
5: to tax relief.
8: It's interesting about the investment part too. You know, it makes me wonder if we're gonna see a lot more of that, you know, as as we've seen so many people who have been traditionally anti-cannabis, but then when they see money in stocks are pro cannabis. So this is kinda of interesting part of it too. Yeah,
1: that that the was interesting to me too. Uh Rico the, the investment? I was wondering okay. what Rico thought about that. On what part? The, the investment piece. That was really interesting. I mean, if you accidentally invested, it's okay. But.
6: Accidentally. <laughs> I mean, we all are accidentally investing in the cannabis industry with all these uh, mega corporations that are in control of it anyways, right?
2: Shout out to everybody that used to accidentally front me back in the day. <laughs>
10: On the, on the investment part, I kind of, I get it because when they're talking about your security clearances, especially for top secret clearances, they want to make sure you're not a financial liability that can be recruited for spying or anything else because these clearances are very valuable. You get access to valuable information. Right. Is it ridiculous? Yes. But, but Sean, I but Sean like, real,
6: real quickly on that. If, if the uh, people in Congress they all have clearances too, right? But they can do insider trading. Like, Wait, that any I'm
10: sorry. Were you asking me why the Congress has a double standard? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry.
6: They can? <laughs>
1: they can. What do you mean they can, Rico? They do.
6: Right. That's, they yeah. do what the fuck they want.
10: They do, but you can't. Not if you want a security clearance.
6: Gotta love America. So we're at the end of the, uh, the line for that story. Um, so up next. Top 25 women in cannabis making history, check. CEO of award-winning Original Breeder League, check. Golden Bong solidifying her spot in history as one of the industry's greatest influencers of all time, check. These are just a few of the accolades gathered by our next correspondent, who I just might add is one of the dopest mamas in the biz, too. Priscilla Agoncillo, what you got for us today?
7: I love you, Dope Dad Rico. Thank you for that intro, um, so my story today um, has uh, touches on some points. Um, anything to do with moms, kids, and cannabis is something near and dear to my heart. My story is toddler hospitalized after eating cake pop made with cannabis. A Toledo mom is sending out a warning to other parents after her toddler ended up in the hospital after accidentally eating a cake pop made with cannabis. While on vacation in Florida last month, Rebecca Villarreal said she noticed something was wrong with her three-year-old son, Emilio. After dinner one night, she said her family stopped for a treat at Groovy Smoothie in Tarpon Springs, Florida. According to their Facebook page, the store sells items such as fruit bowls, juices, and smoothies, along with the choice of being infused with cannabis. This is what's written in the article. Valarial claims an employee offered to make them a smoothie without cannabis in it that was safe for children to consume. Meanwhile, the three-year-old son asked for a cake pop from a refrigerator that was labeled as kid-friendly cake pop. Ten minutes later, it triggered him, said Valariel. He fell asleep in the car, right home, and we put him to bed. When he woke up, he was screaming and crying. That's when he ru- she rushed her son to Advent North um, Pineas Hospital. The diagnosis was accidental marijuana overdose. It turns out the cake pop was made with 100 milligrams of THC, which is an active ingredient in marijuana that makes users high. Again, this was all written in the article. Valariel tells 30, 13, uh, ABC 13 an employee accidentally placed a THC cake pop in the kid-friendly area, and the owner of Groovy Smoothie gave them a card that read, in part, we sincerely apologize and hope you get well soon. Valariel adds that the owner claims she would make changes to protocol, hold a staff meeting, put a lock on the fridge... Um, and, uh, Valariel said that she went back the next day, no changes were made. ABC 13 reached out to Gruby Smoothie for comment. They said that they would send a statement. This story will be updated. once statement is received. End of story. So, um, there was a lot of very questionable language of how this story was written. I further looked into it, uh, and it turns out this article was completely skewed, it was an actual real smoothie shop that sells acai bowls, toasts, Along with their susi- uh, smoothies, they, they offer um, hemp-infused uh, drops uh, with products like CBD, CBG, and Delta 8. Um, I actually spoke with someone at the store. They commented that they were just selling things within their legal right and had no idea someone would have a reaction such as this. Uh, So the fact that, you know, I I feel terrible for the child that he ended up hospitalized. Um, He did eat a Delta 8 cake pop. The family should have not had to go through that, especially, you know, she obviously doesn't know anything about it. But I would like to shame the writer of this article and ABC 13 for putting out a bullshit prohibition piece and not stating the real facts. This is not the cannabis industry. It wasn't cannabis. It was not a regulated licensed cannabis business selling THC products. It was a smoothie shop selling hemp products, including Delta 8 products. The shop owner should be more aware of Delta 8. Ignorance is not an acceptable full excuse. All cannabinoids should have some level of regulation. So again, leadership in Florida, where are you? And the news should quit with their fear-mongering and slinger tactics and start putting out real facts instead of making the cannabis industry look terrible. Uh, this is Priscilla reporting for the SOC Hour. Yeah, Priscilla, and also the store owner.
1: I mean, come on. They need to get a, a PR person. Their response was awful.
7: Oh, it, it's like a podunk area. It's like a podunk area. They don't... They're like, oh, you know, this was like hemp products. And I was like, wow, okay. But the way this is written, zero facts were, like, really put out there. It, it's terrible.
5: The kid allegedly felt the effects in 10 minutes. Was this some yes. d 8 yes. I mean, this just sounds like a, a, yes. part of this is fabricated as far as of I'm Of course.
7: Concerned. And what is a diagnosis? Overdose of marijuana. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not true. You, you don't OD on marijuana. Well, I mean, and this is where uh, Delta
8: 8 is yeah, but, continually getting us in trouble, like we're saying. I mean, this is ridiculous. Cannabis is being blamed, and it's Delta 8. Unregulated
10: Delta 8, 100%. I mean, uh, cake pop, do you guys, we've had those at Starbucks, right? They're single serving, 100 milligrams in one single serving. Cake pop, that's a little much. And I like heavy dose edibles. Even I'm kind of like, whoa. We have reached
1: the half hour mark, so we're going to do a quick relight.
0: You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
1: The thoughts and opinions
2: expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
1: Also, we are recording the show. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news.
6: Let's do it. Now, he's a Long Beach-based cannabis and intellectual property attorney and the head honcho at Fruit Slabs, deliciously vegan and beautifully packaged edible treat. But don't be surprised if this bearded industry vet is in the background of random celeb IG accounts and old Entourage episodes. I told y'all once, I told y'all twice, I told y'all every day to follow the money. Brandon Dorsky. what flavor news slabs you got for us today, brother?
5: Oh, thanks for having me today. My article comes from MJ Biz Daily in Washington. It's Washington state, adult use cannabis generates huge impacts, but high tax burden. And this actually comes from a study commissioned by the Washington Cannabis Business Association. And the study was done by High Peak Strategy, where they looked at the Washington market and found in 2020, it generated more than $1.4 billion and employed 11,330 workers. And that revenue came from 1,600 businesses holding 2,795 licenses, with tax revenue totaling 695.4 million. The study actually studied the entire adult use market in Washington over its first nine years and claimed it was responsible for 18,360 jobs, $876.5 million in labor income, and approximately $2.7 billion in total revenue. Uh, The state's excise tax over that time of 37% is the highest in the United States. When you add in the the local and state taxes, the average tax rate on a Washington sale is 46.2%. So you're basically paying one and a half times the sticker price when you're out the door. Um, The article claims this pushes some to the illicit market. And operators have expressed that the burdensome tax regime and state regulations really frustrate their ability to scale up uh, and that the state's residency requirement also inhibits outside investment. That's a common theme in articles recently. Uh, Vicki Christopherson, uh, the Washington Cannabis Business Association executive director, noted that the high tax rate has been really good for the state's coffers, but it's become very burdensome to the industry and is really undermining the long-term business sustainability of actors in the market there. Uh, the article was rather light on any other information, mostly statistical data, uh, but what it does show is there's a very robust marketplace in the state of Washington, and they've generated a tremendous amount of tax revenue uh, at the expense of their consumers. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State
6: of Cannabis. I just thought they would have got it figured out by now. They were one of the first. Was it been seven years now?
5: I think it's it's been nine. And the the residency requirement and uh, I think there's a residency requirement. And I believe in Washington, you can't be like completely stacked in terms of vertically integrated. That could have changed. But I believe initially that was the case. And that frustrated some market actors up there. But you can get fruit slabs in the state of Washington, so if you are there, check them out.
10: <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo!
1: Hey, so, but yeah, Was- yeah. Washington doesn't have the distribution piece, does it?
2: Their, their model does not stand the same distribution model that California does. No, they
6: have, a mil- right. they have a million dispensaries there, though.
1: So, so that, that cuts out one middleman. I mean, is our distro piece in California a problem?
5: Uh, it makes it a little bit easier to get your product from production to a uh, retailer, but uh, my understanding of, for a lot of the small mom-and-pop actors, you know, the population density uh, outside of Seattle is not very dense, and so to blanket the entire state, you need, you need multiple vehicles, you need a lot of workers, and some of the small operations just can't really scale like that, so they don't have their own distra.
1: I was under the understanding that the small farmers in Northern California, that was part of the uh, problem that was hurting them was the the distribution piece, but...
2: I mean, the distribution piece is a part that's hurting, but it's not that hard to get your own distribution license, and it's not very expensive to have your own distribution license in the way of if you're already producing your product. Um, So the opportunity is there, and so the conversation of like, oh, I have to be held to this other distributor is just not true. Um, But the amount of logistics, and I, I run a distribution, the amount of energy and logistics that go in to managing that and the fact that you're sitting on the tax liability is insane. And in real life, I don't think, and not to be an asshole, majority of these operators have the fortitude to manage the taxing in the way that it <clears throat> needs to be done. Um, and this is going to be a huge liability choke point for a lot of these businesses um, when it comes to the levels of taxing that exists in, in California. Now, if that changes, I think that we could have a much different conversation about the need for a distributor. However, the the extreme layers of taxation does require that there be somebody that kind of manages that, that choke point in the middle, in my mind.
1: We've got Billy Gorson up from the audience. Billy, did you want to weigh in? No, thank you. All righty, then. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I love that.
1: I was well, just
4: wait, oh. the, I think it's like I think that it's not necessarily having a distributor per se that is, problematic for a lot of the cultivators, but more the the transportation restrictions and then some of the complexities regarding the taxation calculations that are difficult. But obviously, a lot of distribution is making our cultivation community stronger.
5: Uh, I would like to note the financing of the vehicles for distribution is... Even though that's available to you, at least in California, the financing of the vehicles for distribution is a little bit of a challenge because of the federal prohibitions, um, and you do need to own your vehicle if you're a distribution company. So it's not as easy as it sounds.
2: Let's move right along to Chris Eggers. Chris Eggers is the founder of CC Security Solutions, former reader of your Miranda Rights, turned passer of The Reefer. Chris, what do you have for us today?
9: Good morning, Nicole. Thank you for the intro. My article today comes out of uh, Oakland and touches on um, the burglaries and robberies that are happening there. The, the the article title says, "Oakland's cannabis industry reeling from car." caravan burglaries. Again, the most recent wave of thefts in November caused an estimated $5 million in damage and loss uh, inventory, of one of Oakland's most important industries. So a couple things in this article that I took note of. One, um, the CRC meeting had a lieutenant from OPD, and he talked about the burglaries ranging from basically Friday to Monday morning uh, back in November. But of note, That's just not accurate data, according to members of the CRC, who said that the burglary started as early as Wednesday. Um, A lot of frustration with with OPD and police response. Specifically, somebody named in this article um, was watching their facility on cameras being ransacked for about 45 minutes before um, OPD was able to respond. And although Oakland burglaries were down 11% in 2021 compared to the five-year average, and robberies were flat at about 3% above the average the targeting of cannabis businesses appears to be a growing trend. Um, James Henry SF was one of about 20 cannabis shops targeted over the weekend in late November, the latest wave of burglaries and robberies since hitting local industry since summer 2020. Now, again, uh, listening to the CRC meetings, which I've attended um, very consistently and spoken to several members on the board, um, a lot of people are not reporting um, be out of frustration. I know a lot of operators that just don't call the police because they've done that before and they didn't get the intended results they thought they would get. And so they're just not, not reporting. So I think that it's important to note, um, not trying to talk crap, but it's important to note that the stats that uh, local law enforcement agencies put out aren't always accurate. I think we all know that, but I think it's important to note that. Um, in addition, I don't know if that 5 million is is accurate. I I would argue that it's likely much higher. In addition, um, a lot of these operators may not be made whole with respect to, um, specific requirements in their insurance policies, which is an ever increasing, um, trend that I'm seeing in cannabis as well. Um, really, really great article. Um, and these meetings are, are really informative, but again, you know, my big point after reading this article is that, the data presented by law enforcement may not be accurate. I don't think it's accurate here, um, just because a lot of operators are not calling. And so that is my article. Um, I appreciate you letting me share it today on the State of Cannabis News Hour. And my name is Chris Eggers.
1: Yeah, Chris, I would love to see MJ Biz do an article about uh, insurance companies and and if and how they pay out because I I haven't seen that data anywhere. I keep it's, asking.
9: Yeah. You know, the insurance companies are in the business of collecting your um, money every month and, and they have very specific requirements uh, as to when they will pay out when you when you make a claim based on what those specific circumstances are. And it comes down, you know, I read a lot of insurance policies as part of what I do on a day-to-day basis. And there's a lot of language that is very, very specific. Um, and if, if you don't meet those requirements, uh, it's right there in the fine print buried. <laughs> you know, the, the, these operators are stuck, you know, without any Um, relief from the insurance company. So, you know, again, as facilities rebuild uh, or build, it is extremely important. I cannot stress this enough to make sure that all of the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and you understand what's in your policy, what's covered and what's not. So you're paying that money every month. You really need to understand that.
2: A lot of people just go and get the insurance policy licensing. And I think that's probably one of the biggest issues when we're dealing with the cannabis industry right now. Uh, people do good enough for a license, good enough security plan, good enough operational plan for a license, good enough insurance for a license. And now when they all come to be tested, um, was it good enough for the actual operation? Nine times out of ten answers. No. Exactly.
9: And, that, and not even, Nicole, you're a spot on. And that's not even in regards to just burglars and robberies, right? I mean, a lot of um and, and it happens for a lot of reasons i mean it is very expensive to build out a facility that's completely compliant uh, but really good point nicole
6: all right so he's an avid sailor trekker and traveler with a multicultural background fifth generation california but we here know him as the freedom fighting farmer's friend up next is international man of truth telling eric His-Lareda. Wow. That for us, my man.
11: hey rico hey everybody great to be here today uh My headline is from The Guardian and it's magic mushroom companies are on the NASDAQ now. That's a that's a recipe for a bad trip. With a subhead that reads Wall Street and Peter Thiel are all investing in psychedelics, but OxyContin showed the harm profit hungry corporations can cause with air quotes wonder drugs. Everyone is by now familiar with the devastation wreaked by opioids across the country and beyond, but with less well I will known is the intentional mechanisms which put this process in play and subsequently went off the rails when the human factor of greed was mixed in by corporate interests who knew this article's premise is we have to be watchful for more of the same in the years ahead with psychedelics the article opens like this the new hulu series dope sick is a dramatic reminder of the devastation that has been wrought by the opioid epidemic like the book on which it is based, and like other journalism about the Oxycontin crisis, the show makes it clear that members of the Sackler family, Purdue, unscrupulous doctors, and the FDA all played a part in causing the rampant overprescription of Oxycontin. Suddenly, every kind of pain, not only physical, but also psychological and social, seemed to have a single answer Oxycontin. Opioids are one of the oldest drugs in the human pharmacopoeia, but Oxycontin's new patents made every person in pain a source of easy money for Purdue. This led to a wave of addiction and overdose. When regulators cracked down on legal pills, many people turned to the illicit drug market, putting them in even greater danger. Researchers and recently formed companies, many of them backed by venture capital, are tripping over each other to study and patent the use of psychedelics, not only for PTSD, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders, but also for Alzheimer's, headaches, schizophrenia, traumatic brain injury, and more. This long list might be the result of laudable scientific curiosity, but it could also be an attempt to find the largest possible number of applications for a potentially profitable drug. I'm going to skip down a few graphs um, to what I think is a really important point here. Uh, Some of the organizations researching and advocating for the therapeutic use of psychedelics are nonprofits, and a number of these signed on to a recent statement promising to take an open science approach that does not involve patents. But other psychedelic-assisted therapy companies are traded on NASDAQ, eager to lock in profits through the use of intellectual property law. They're developing proprietary formulations and synthetic versions of plant medicines that have been used for centuries. Once treated as a mysterious gift of nature, psilocybin is being commodified and transformed into private property. And let's note um, that this is also happening with cannabis right now. Uh, back to the article, we know from our extensive professional and personal experience that psychedelics can be enormously useful in many situations. They can provide relief, transformation, insight, and profound moments of awakening, but their value is embedded in cultural practices and social relationships. They have unpredictable results and should never be forced on anyone. Above all, psychedelics can't solve the problems of a society in which so many people have been harmed by violence and inequality. Despite the public pillaring of Purdue and the Sacklers, America is still plagued by the untrammeled greed of the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare lobby, by out of control drug prices and a deeply unjust medical system that often relies on coercion and control. Treating psychedelics as a new wonder drug risks yet another pharmaceutical disaster. We have to step back and question the foundations and assumptions of our approach to medicine. Otherwise, we risk making the same mistakes we saw with OxyContin. And that's what I've got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thanks for having me up.
1: I was looking at uh, what topics I should put for the room because I was doing the three ones that were uh, cannabis-related, and there are only like 5,000 followers for a uh, cannabis industry, but psychedelics, there's like 1.5 million uh, people here on Clubhouse follow that topic, so there is absolutely a lot of interest in, in psychedelics.
11: There's just this societal surge right now, and and it's wonderful to have this opening, but at the same time, you know, it's also when the vultures swoop in and people who don't give a shit about the medicine or its power or its legacy, you know, just want to take advantage. So I think uh, that's why I love this article.
1: Dr. Delta 9 wants to weigh in. Yeah, this is chemo again. Um,
0: yeah, no, I microdose every week, usually on Mondays. Uh, improves my life incredibly and also wanted to say happy birthday to dr albert hoffman uh, the uh, founder the creator lsd it's his birthday today who was also one Woo-hoo! of the first people ever have a patent on suicide uh, yeah
11: nice get nice get Thank and you. big shout
12: out to dr del potter for all the research he does
1: Absolutely. Love, Dr. Dell.
10: You know, uh, with this pharmaceutical thing, I think there's a way for us to bring natural medicine and and this kind of pharmaceutical medicine together. But what Eric is describing is the way that we've done business in the United States from the beginning, where we're seeking some kind of gold and we're afraid of what we're going to miss out on. And that bastardizes it to such an extent that you can't recognize what it is. I really think cannabis and psychedelics has an opportunity to lead a new version of industrialization that can change the way we do things
2: amazing way to close that headline out thank you so much uh, good story eric and something that we need to keep following um, and up next we have laura DeCara. laura is the founder and the international cannabis bar association a badass canna mom and also the founder of the san francisco equity applicant pro bono legal project what do you have for us today laura
4: well, hi everyone. I'm um, going to build on Eric's article and um, uh, talk about another um, interesting psychedelic development. Um, the the title of my article uh, is "Anti-Drug GOP Senator Helps Psychedelic Church with Fight Against DEA and IRS." Kyle Yeager, one of our faves. A Republican U.S. senator who's known as staunchly anti-drug has apparently been helping an Iowa church that wants to incorporate the psychedelic brew ayahuasca into its ceremonies, even if he hasn't changed his overall views about drug policy, the article starts out. In a horrible play on words, The or possibly aptly named church, the ayahuasca ayahuasca church of healing <laughs> has been trying without success to obtain a religious exemption from the csa the controlled substances act which designates ayahuasca as illegal and they've been seeking tax exempt status from the irs It is currently litigating against the irs over the denials and i actually i looked up the law firm representing them, it's Denton's. It's the largest law firm in the world. Um, So speaking of deep pockets there, folks, regardless of whether Senator Grassley um, supports or agrees with a particular request or policy outcome, he believes that Iowans have every right to petition their government and the government ought to be responsive. His um, communication director, Taylor Foy, is quoted as saying, He goes on to say Senator Grassley reads his mail, and he's always happy to help facilitate dialogue between Iowans and the bureaucracy in Washington. The church, for its part, uh, says it has actually not incorporated the hallucinogen into its services since 2019, when the IRS responded to an information request stating that the activity was considered illegal. It also apparently has never conducted ceremonies at the church's Iowa address, and the sacramental ingredients have never been stored there, according to Bill Boatwright, an attorney representing the ayahuasca church in the case. Um, Senator Grassley's office took no position on the merits of the IRS or the DEA applications and only attempted to expedite both agencies' reviews of them, he said. His office was not provided with either of the applications for review. Um, The former Senate Judiciary Committee chairman seems to have a particular interest in statutory exemptions related to controlled substances, however, even if he is personally against the drugs. For example, uh, Kyle points out that last year, one cannabis activist in his home state wrote to him about the DEA's denial of a request for statutory exemption for Iowa's medical cannabis program having made an exemption for peyote and pointing out the hypocrisy. Grassley's office sent a response shortly thereafter, saying he would follow up with the DEA on the point of exemption. So he's also sponsored legislation meant to streamline applications for researchers, which, in my opinion, is a delay tactic, a delay, a delay, delay tactic. But it's interesting to see this. But uh, this come to to light, um, and I'm curious what my fellow correspondents and, and those in the audience might have to say about it, especially if we have anyone from Ayahuasca territory. Territory. Uh, sorry, my name is Laurie DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
8: Well, I'm not from Iowa, but this your story screams <laughs> of hypocrisy and money. Uh, follow the money. It just I sounds to... like some
11: Jim Jones shit. I mean, it's just so <laughs> off the rails. I mean, uh, it's just coming? It's it, it's like, is this guy a big donor to Grassley? It's such a, it just doesn't, nothing adds up here. It's just fascinating. I read the story. Thank you for bringing it, Laura. It's just, it's just insane.
12: I actually, I think I disagree with that a little bit, Eric, but I wanted to jump in because I think there's a tax point here, which is they're getting denied tax exempt status because they're doing something illegal and they're making it clear that they're doing something illegal where the First Amendment protects their religious freedom right to do something. So a ton of communities all over the country are either applying for tax-exempt status, not fully disclosing their legal activities, getting approval, um, or some of them are applying for this DEA exemption process. So I actually think the work of trying to push the DEA to— and the DEA, in my opinion, shouldn't be the one making this decision, but there are a lot of communities that could benefit from this changing. Um, so I think if a Dentons wants to, you know, foot the bill to push forward a church, and I get there are people who are like, well, they shouldn't call themselves ayahuasca like Iowa and whatever— but, I mean, they're pre- it's almost like proving the point, right? Like, the IRS shouldn't be deciding who a religion is. The DEA shouldn't be deciding who a religion is. But the IRS is already doing it. So if the IRS is going to deny their status, um, I mean, like I said, I don't think we agree on it. But I really appreciate you bringing the story, Laura. And I think this is going to be something you're seeing more and more.
11: But it just well, sounds like, just really quick, it just sounds like cultural appropriation. What connection do these people have with ayahuasca and that whole culture? They're, they're not casual. I, I mean,
12: they're there I mean, there, well, there's a lot of there there, but also like the immortality key, all this other evidence that like these substances have been part of all types of traditions. And this is my own view that I don't think we should say indigenous people are the only people that have religious rights to these. They're substances. the only people that well, have, have
11: it, ayahuasca are indigenous people of South America. That's not global.
4: But the, the, I think I mean, is they are actually using it, right? I mean, so they're willing to forgo that sacred. Well, that's part, part, part of the, the DEA thing, thing too. I mean, So, and, but I also, I mean, Victoria, you're our tax specialist. What has the court said in the past? I don't think this is necessarily the IRS or the DEA coming down on a position. This has been litigated in the past with regard to religious exemptions for controlled substances. That's, that's settled law.
12: I mean, it's sort of settled law, right? Like they're, 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 are, there is this DEA exemption process, which there's another lawsuit, the AIA lawsuit, where they're challenging the DEA process because they didn't go through formal rulemaking, and there's no basis for the DEA to come up with this process. Um, but on the federal level, I mean, like, I think that it, there, to me it's not settled. There's like a clear conflict between this idea that you have the religious right because of the Supreme Court cases that say that you could have a religious exemption to drug laws, the UDV case, other cases. And then you have the IRS saying, you know, we're bureaucrats who are checking a list, and if they tell me they're doing something illegal, you know, I have to— I have to mark that. And that's grounds for denying tax exempt status, which I think what I think is interesting in the church context is that churches are not required to apply for tax exempt status. So why they're choosing to do so to help them get bank accounts, to help them get donations. Like I said, I think this is a really good test case. And I think you're going to see more and more efforts to try and push the CEA process off the table to help Help pay income tax. I don't know. Well, I guess, like, to me, to me, and again, this is coming from someone, like, I studied divinity school, like, I believe in religion, I believe in community, I'm married to a rabbi, like, I think that there's a, a present and a future in religious-based use of psychedelics, not just indigenous use. But that's my view, and people can disagree. What a
1: great conversation. We're, we're at time on this. Let's keep smoking the news.
6: Let's do it. So, up next, the man known in certain circles as Kaiser Brose is back. For those of y'all who are unaware, the cannabis industry's longest continuous running retailer is also a bi coastal, international, private jet hopping deal maker with an affinity for smoking the greatest weed in the world and drinking liberal tears from non recyclable BPA water bottles. Up next is Jason Beck. Bring us home, brother.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Rico. Today, my story involves 125 pounds of pot stuffed in suitcases seized in a traffic stop near Jacksonville Airport. More than 100 pounds of marijuana stuffed inside a half dozen suitcases were seized during a traffic stop late Wednesday evening near Jacksonville International Airport, according to the Florida Highway Patrol. According to an arrest report, a trooper pulled over a Dodge Durango on Dixie Clipper Drive for dark window tint and detected a strong odor of cannabis coming out of the vehicle. Troopers said that after a canine positively alerted to the presence of drugs, they searched the vehicle and found 108 vacuum-sealed bags filled with 125 pounds of pot inside six suitcases. they were also baggage claims, tickets connected to the luggage. According to the arrest report, three men were inside the vehicle, one of whom said he was just there to pick up the other two, and those two men were arrested. Artis Wars, 27, and Michael Lewis, 28, both face felony charges of marijuana trafficking and smuggling, and investigators believe the marijuana was flown into Jacksonville from the West Coast, and this wasn't the first time authorities have recovered dozens of pounds of marijuana in the area of Jacksonville. Jacksonville DEA Assistant Special Agent in charge, in charge, Mike Doobie says that it's, it says that it is a big demand in Northeast Florida for hydroponic marijuana made in California, where it's legal to grow and use. That marijuana is more potent and provides a more intense high, and that's what customers are looking for, uh, Doobie said. The the high grade marijuana smuggled into Jacksonville sells for about two thousand per pound. So the hundred and twenty five pounds seized uh, this week by FHP had a street value of about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Demand for for some of the marijuana grown in California is not just limited to Northeast Florida. An undercover DEA agent working out of Savannah, Georgia, office says that Southeast Georgia is also experiencing large quantities of high-grade marijuana being smuggled in. It's something we're dealing with on a large number of of our cases. High-grade marijuana being sent from California to Southeast Georgia. The agent told uh, the customers are predominantly only looking for certain strains. And there's a whole bunch more of this, so I encourage you to check this article out. It's a great story and this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Jason I mean, you can't make this shit up Sergeant Doobie or Agent uh, Doobie Doobie uh, Come on, people. This is news. This is the news, though, and this is what we bring you every weekday here at the State of Cannabis News Hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that dig through the headlines every weekday and bring us just what we need to know. Thank you so much, Rico and Nicole, for co-producing the show with me. And thank you, audience, for making the State of Cannabis News Hour stickiest show here on clubhouse
0: you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m pacific time for the state of cannabis news hour your daily
12: dose say goodbye rico Goodbye.